Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 494 with my guest, Greg Cheever. This is a best of episode. This is from 2011. As I mentioned in last week's episode, I'm taking a little bit of time off. The month of July is going to be best of episodes. And I I like it for two reasons, because I can introduce you guys to some of my favorite episodes from the past. Um, Episodes 1 through 95 are not available publicly. I hold those back so I can release them uh, as best of episodes. And uh, Greg Cheevers was broken up into two episodes, so part two will run next week. But uh, he's a friend of mine, uh, and he has some great stories, and he's just a great guy. And I, I think you'll like this this episode. So I'm running it in its entirety, um, and uh, I'll be having new episodes once uh, we are back in August. Our sponsor for today is BetterHelp.com. Online counseling, if you've never tried online counseling Boy, if now isn't the time to give it a shot, when is? Just go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from the podcast. Uh, And if you are under 18, they can now also find counseling for you. If you're between 13 and 17, they'll uh, direct you to teencounseling.com. And once parental consent is obtained, then the relationship between the uh, child what do you call them, kid, adolescent, troublemaker, is a one-on-one private communication between the the, the counselor and the teen after consent is obtained. Uh, and it satisfies all legal requirements in all 50 states. So check it out, whether it's betterhelp.com or teencounseling.com. It's, uh, it's a good thing, and I use it because I'm a teenager. <laughs> I've been using BetterHelp.com for several years, and it has helped me tremendously. So once again, go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. And here we go with a replay. The best of episode 24 with my friend Greg Cheever, part one of two. 
Welcome to episode 24 with my guest, Greg Cheever, part one of two parts. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions to everyday compulsive negative thinking, feelings of dissatisfaction, disconnection, inadequacy, and that vague sinking feeling that the world is passing us by. You give us an hour, we'll give you a hot ladle of awkward and icky. But first, a few notes. The uh, website for this show is mentalpod.com. That's also the Twitter name that you can follow me at. And uh, if you go to the website, um, I've got some blogs there, and we're starting to incorporate guest blogs into that as well. So uh, uh, those might be worth checking out. Thank you for continuing to to, uh, to take the survey. And you can support it non-financially by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, and that, that uh, helps bring people to the show, which uh, which we like. I don't know if you guys saw Adele sing at the Video Music Awards earlier this week, but wow, unbelievable. That was like the performance of a lifetime. I've never been so moved by a singer, by anything, by any artist. And uh, it just made me think, everybody I've talked to saw that and was so moved by it. And it made me think maybe that's the direction this show needs to go in. Maybe I need to... Maybe I need to move you guys to tears. Maybe I need to be honest with you. And say, look, these past 23 episodes have been bullshit. You're fucking lazy. Go ahead, let it out, cry. If you can manage to put the effort forth into crying. You sleep all day. I've said that's okay. It's not. It's not. You need to start pulling your weight. I've told you that all the pain you suffered as a child is going to make you into a more interesting person. Again, a lie. It's made you draining. Hard to listen to. Hard to look at. Some of you hard to listen to and hard to look at. God, you are to be avoided. Are you crying yet? I don't care if you're crying or you're laughing. Maybe you're doing both. That would make me more talented than Adele. She doesn't make anybody laugh. She just makes them cry. I'm more powerful than Adele. That's what I want you to take away from this. Then you can go back to bed. This may be the worst idea I've ever had. I just lost listeners in the key of A minor. Everybody I know is bizarrely, beautifully fucked up in some weird way. I couldn't stand you in the audition. I couldn't stand you. Yes, awful. I was drunk. And I learned that I could solve my problems. And said. Through violence, since I couldn't communicate. Lonely? Yes. I'm afraid that my genitalia is ugly. That's hurtful. And what was your role in the robbery? I mean, you never knew what you were going home to. I had a jar that had teeth in it. I was a wreck. Other people's teeth? Yeah. I'm here with Greg Cheever, who uh, is a is a really good friend of mine. And uh, man, I'm so excited to have you on because the longer I know you, the more 
I get to know about you and the more of your stories I hear and uh you you've worked in the in the film industry since when did you start? I actually started at uh, Fox in the mail department in 1967. And uh you were a projectionist for I uh, was it project started as a projectionist in 69 at MGM and then I went into sound at Lionsgate for 12 years and then I went back into projection uh, for another 22, 38 years in total. 38 years in total and thrown in the middle of that is heroin addiction, running from the law, uh, <laughs> encounters with uh, celebrities in studios. At one point, your photo was posted at the security gate to four major studios with with the the sign saying, "Under no circumstances let this person in." That's right. I had uh, one of the few guys to have my own wanted posters <laughs> at the guard shacks of the of four of the seven major lots in Hollywood. We're gonna get to we're gonna get to all of that, but I want to start at the beginning, and I want to talk about your your parents because your dad. Uh, I just found out uh, you you talked about this uh, about a year ago. Uh, your dad was a kind of a cult hero jazz musician. Uh, to talk about your dad, if you would. Uh, I grew up right here in Sherman Oaks, Studio City in Sherman Oaks. Um, my father was a studio musician for forty years at Fox. And what was your dad's name? Russell Cheever. Uh-huh. And uh, outside of his studio gigs, which he was a, a reed player of uh, just about all the reed instruments, they uh, they put together what's called the Hollywood Saxophone Quartet, which was four different saxophones, you know, soprano, alto, bass, tenor. Mm-hmm. And that's all it was, is four highly trained studio musicians wrote their own stuff, uh, a gentleman by the name of Lenny Niehaus, who was a composer and a famous writer back in big band days, uh, wrote some of their stuff also. And they uh, they put out four different albums. My father also was a, a teacher to a lot of uh, famous musicians, uh, Pete Fountain, the Chris Lee Boys. Um, and I remember my dad was a very disciplined man. He was... Uh, a man of integrity, he was a man of passive man, he was a man of passion about his craft. Um, when you say a passive man, what do you mean? He was just a man that was, uh, you know, very gentle and kind. Okay, not, the, no, not, no, not in a bad way? No, 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 he was a, he was a, he was a great man. Uh, look, I had a warped mind from the beginning. Yeah. I, was a, I was a younger Boy with an older pack. My brother was two and a half years older than me. We were sports fanatics. Um, my whole dream in life was to be a a major league baseball player. Uh, we had Dodgers that were involved with the family um, that helped uh, train me in baseball. I did break a lot of records here in this valley growing up. I had no idea. Yeah. More more shit about you that I had no idea. What position oh. did you play? Pitcher, yeah, and um, but I was a me and my brothers. I mean, you gotta understand. We grew up in in Sherman Oaks when the Ventura Freeway wasn't there, right? This and is it, what Orange Groves and yeah, it was. Uh, 
we did some stuff that was unbelievable. And we, we would, I mean, destroy these buildings. We would do just horrible stuff to this guy. Because at 3 o'clock we'd get out of school, yeah. and uh, the crews would quit at 3. Right. And, um, in fact, they were building a new auditorium at the Riverside Elementary School there on Riverside and Ethel. And uh, I got up in the, in the diesel tractor and got the thing started because it, it had a magneto in it, right? Right. So you could start it. Started right up. Well, I started up happened to be in gear, right? <laughs> I mean, the auditorium's almost done. They just got through gun-eyeing it, and the bulldozer went right through it. Clean, right? <laughs> oh. And were you happy or horrified? Oh, we had so, we had so much fun. We terrorized that school so bad. And um, how old were you at this point? The first time the plane closeman came and pulled me out of school, I was at Milliken. I just my first year at Milliken, so I was probably eleven. Wow! Uh, there used to be a guy back then. They didn't have the little blinking electronic lights with the battery packs. Mm-hmm. There'd be a guy called the Lantern Man, and he would after they'd get through grading the freeway and evening it out, and there'd be earth movers and land, uh, you know, bulldozers up there. And the lantern man would put these caution signs around them, you know, and with, with kerosene lanterns, <laughs> right? And he, he was the guy that kept the kerosene in them. That right. was his job. And he was like this old, fat, angry, probably just get ready to retire. Which made it all the more fun to make the angry guy angrier. And he had the most foul mouth ever, right? Yeah. So... What we would do is we would go up to, there was a 5 and 10 at the corner called Quigley's. And we would go up there and we would steal CO2 cartridges, right? Mm-hmm. That you put in your daisy pump at the time right. or whatever. And uh, Your BB we, gun. Yeah. yeah. And we would lift the glass thing on the kerosene lamp and put that CO2 cartridge in like a whole row of them going down. Uh-huh. Right? Now that's basically, I don't know what caliber shell that would be right but when that goes off it's it's very scary (laughs) right if it happens to hit the caution wooden caution thing it it shreds it it turns it into like a toothpick it was going through garages it was going in houses you could hear it you could hear it like a missile go through the air right and the lantern man would be coming down and we'd go oh it's getting ready here he comes it's getting ready right (laughs) We did it to this guy for at least a year. I, I, I think, you know, here comes the lantern man. Come on, let's go get the lantern man. It was, it was so much fun. <laughs> and you think how dangerous that was. Yeah, it was amazing you, ne- you didn't kill somebody. Oh, unbelievable. Or ourselves. It, yeah. Is, yeah. And, and it, it just went on and on and on from there. I could talk, I could tell you stories, Paul. Every day was something crazy. But I'll hit a few highlights and we'll move on because this will take up a lot of time. But um, when the freeway did open, mm-hmm. uh, I was in print shop at Milliken. Mm-hmm. And we printed up these, car, these, these little cards called the Chuckers because mm-hmm. we were all about throwing because mm-hmm. we all had baseball arms, right? Yeah. And uh, I can pick that guy off. I know I can do it. Watch this, right? And so to get into this club called the Chuckers, you had to break three truck windshields of semis coming down the freeway. Uh, um, to get into the, the Chucker Club? To get into the Chucker Club, yeah. Yeah. Right? 
Oh, we got so good at this, and we, we got up there high, really up there high, right? We got, I, I had like 15, my brother had like 22. You would break the front windshield on semis driving. Yes, coming down the, coming down yeah. the slow lane, right? And they would hit those air brakes, and the, the whole rear trailer would go, yeah! It's sliding, it would almost be so and, exciting. that We would hide down yeah. in the weeds of the dirt yes. lot next to the freeway. Yeah. Right? And, that, and that's your first drug. As a kid, because I remember oh. that you wanted them to chase you because oh. that kept the Absolutely. high going longer. And the laughter, you would, your legs would be shaking because you'd be laughing so hard. But you're also, there's the risk that you're going to get this shit beat out of you by an adult. But you also know, I can outrun these fuckers. Yep. Yep. But hearing that thing when you would, boom, you hit, you'd hit the side of a bus or you'd hit a window, or even worse, it would disappear into the cab of something, yes. and you'd hear the brakes hit. Then you knew you fucking hit the guy, yes. and that was, yeah. Oh, boy, do I, I mean, remember as, that. As you know, you, you sounds like you had some experience in this. So, <laughs> yes. so, But the stuff we did as kids would make the evening news today. That was above what I did, way above what I did. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it was, I, I, you tell people this kind of stuff today, and they go, oh, you're lying, you're kidding, whatever. No, we, we that, that's unbelievably, we got caught eventually, so. Um, and you never seriously hurt anybody? Oh, yeah. You did? Yeah, yeah, we Who? did because, um, well, not that we knew of, okay? But what was so exciting about it is the trucks, the truckers would pull off on the Coldwater ramp and they would come, they'd bring those big semis down those little residential areas. It was like this. Looking for and, you. Yeah, looking for Like you. a so Stephen was, King movie. Oh, exactly. And we'd be down in the weeds hiding there like, you know, and it, they, would, they would take their lights and you hear that big truck, oh. you know. And uh, it was so exciting, you know. And it, it, it's the same module that took me when I was doing drugs, yeah. when I was started to deal drugs. Yeah. See, when I started dealing drugs, I realized that a huge part of my addiction was that exactly getting the big deal done yeah. in the middle of the night, carrying a lot of weight, and all you need is one cop to pass you, and you know you're done. Right? Yeah, that's about so it. You're so. Getting, so you're getting high through vandalism and, and a bunch of uh, mm -hmm. other shit. Then when when did the the drugs uh, start? My brother had gone away to college as on a track scholarship, and he was up north, and he'd been away for quite a while. And this is right in the middle of the whole '60s deal. Right, this is '66. Okay, so everything's happening up north, big time, as far as uh, free love and drugs and all that. So he went away as this just really good-looking guy, great physique, just, you know, real healthy athlete. And I see him pull up as I'm talking to my mother in the kitchen window. I see him pull up unexpected. Hey, look, there's 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 a uh, he had this '59 Chevy. Uh, which all the none of the windows rolled up and it was white, so we called it the freezer. <laughs> so, hey, look, there's the freezer, and he gets out and he's got hair, you know, hair down to here. Yeah. He's got a tapestry, you know, with a hole in the top pulled over his shirt. He's got tapestry <laughs> jeans on. I think he's got Fairchild boots on, and we're like a full beard, right? And me and my mom just kind of looked at the other, and our jaws dropped. He comes up in the house, makes pleasantries, says hello. And um, and where was he going to school? He was at Chico State, uh -huh. and uh, he um, he comes comes up to me and he goes, "Come on, come on with me." And he takes me in the car. We get we get in the freezer, and he passes me a joint. Right? I had no idea how to smoke it, whatever. And I started smoking this joint. I started getting silly, 
and the head of the joint flew off and landed in the back crevice of the back seat, and I didn't know it. And the back seat caught on fire, and we pulled on the side street, pulled the back seat out because smoke was coming out the rear windows, and we're stomping it, we're laughing. I'm just having a great time. First experience with having just a great time, right? Mm-hmm. So anyways, uh, he, we're driving along after the joint, and the back seat catches on fire, and we go up towards Ferndale Park. He goes, come on, let's come on, let's take a hike back here. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm great. I'm with my brother. This is fun. Uh, I'm still kind of a little stoned. He, he walks me back into the stream. He says, sit down. I sit down in the stream, uh, at the edge of the stream, and he says, just sit there and meditate. And I was like, what? Do what? And I didn't even know what he meant by meditate, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, just get quiet, and I'll be back in a little bit. And he comes back in 15 minutes or so. And it's an, it's much like an evening like this at, at about four o'clock, right? Mm-hmm. Beautiful, good temperature, and he says, "Open up." And he drops drops two tabs of orange sunshine in my mouth, right? And um, I knew it was something that was going to make me get high, but I had no idea that it was it was you know some of the most powerful LSD that it was at least coming out of Southern California, made by the Brotherhood in Laguna Beach. Anyways. And I, he gave you two tabs. He gave me two tabs, yeah. I, see, I was brought up in a, a loving, caring, upper-middle-class family in the 60s, in the 50s, 60s. I was, you know, I was born in 47, so... And it was all about... It was really all about pomp, power, and prestige. That's what I was brought up with. That's kind of what was in my motherboard. You know, look good no matter what on the outside. Do not let the neighbors know what happened. Um, just this mega, you know, black belt denial system about anything wrong or whatever that you've done. Uh, look prestigious. Look like you know what you're doing, even if you don't. This whole false facade, which, which I had no idea was. That was most of America at that point. It was. Yeah. It, it was. But what happened with that LSD is having that I had a complete ego loss trip. It was like this major. I became part of that stream. I, I, I just did a complete ego loss meltdown trip. You know, and uh, on the other side of that, it was like all that pump, power, and prestige washed away, gone, completely gone. I had like a major truth. It was a it was a chemical spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. So it's like I had this major truth serum put in me, and I went home straight from there, probably still purple. Went up to my wife for six months and said, "You can have the house. You can have all the cars." You know, broke her heart. Yeah, but it crushed her. But I was so convinced inside out. Yeah. I was so inside out then, and. Um, and it was a fabulous experience. It really, really, really was. If I just stopped right there and started my life without drugs from there on, uh, maybe I would have had a spectacular life, which I've had. I consider I've had a spectacular life right now. Um, I'm, I'm a blessed, blessed man. But, but you've also can say that with the hindsight of having come out the other side. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have no regrets in my past. There's many times that you have cheated death. <laughs> many, many, many times, yes. And hurt a lot of people. Absolutely. And scared a lot of people oh. and done a lot of damage. Uh, you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you get divorced, divorced from a wife number one. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done acid, you've done weed, and uh, then what? I move into a house south of the boulevard, and it's on. 
is on. The party's on. Uh, smoke, and this is '66. I mean, what? A- this is this is uh, getting close to '69. Uh-huh. Yeah, '68, '68. I'm working at the studios. Uh, I got a few of my other friends that are working other jobs that are living there with me. I'm paying most of the bills because I'm making the big money. Uh, we're having parties every night. The drugs are working phenomenal for me. Basically, LSD, mescaline, PCP, uh, and the best weed, hash, and hash oil, like Naples hash, 60-40 hash, that type of stuff. Very, very high-grade stuff. And then, of course, the cocaine came on board, uh, and we were all sniffing cocaine. Uh, but every weekend was, every night was, all the greatest bands with the music system going and parties on the weekend. And at that time, either the Swing Auditorium or Santa Barbara or San Bernardino or somewhere in L.A. Santa Monica. There was Santa a, Monica, yeah. Pacific, uh, all the big bands, all these famous big bands that are now, you know, from Grand Funk Railroad to, uh, you know, the, the Pink, Pink Floyds to the... That some of the biggest bands, you know, were all playing these little auditoriums that were just coming up. And we would go take massive doses of LSD and go to these things every weekend, right? Wow. And um, we just unbelievable times. Did that for a long time, and then that, uh, that house broke up. We had a lot of huge parties there. We had a major party there that was called... A bunch of my buddies went out and caught a bunch of uh, yellowfin and brought it over, so we had what we called the fish fry. And we basted all the fish in LSD. Right? We, had, <laughs> we had massive doses of LSD, right? And uh, and then we had every we had these jugs of wine all over the house. Each one had a dozen hits in it, right? And so people just started coming in, right? And did you let everybody know there was acid in this, or was this at that time when it was cute to to dose oh, no, people? We no, we didn't let anybody know. Right. By the time, by about eleven o'clock at night, I go out in the backyard of the house, and there's people laying, out on, all over, laying on the lawn. Some are half on the sidewalk. Some, some heads, some of their heads are between rose bushes. They're all looking up at the sky, going, "Do you see that? Oh my God!" No bad and, trips. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I come into the back, come into the house, and we're music, people all over. I couldn't tell, but I certainly noticed some of the bedroom doors are shut, right? And people are. And they're freaking out, won't come out, right? Yeah. And um, so the next thing I hear is the the police, the sirens coming, and the ambulances. And, and uh, as I'm as I'm going around to my buddies, telling them, "Oh, we're gonna have we're gonna have some problem here. Let's get rid of this, hide this, whatever," you know. But back then, it was it was like as long as they could contain and and take care of that part of the neighborhood and get all the kids kind of mm-hmm. the help they did the it was kind of like they just went away. Nobody like they didn't raid us. They didn't search us or anything. That stuff was happening a lot, you know. I had a, a bad experience with uh, acid when I was uh, eighteen. There was a, a ski club in my high school, and we'd take this twelve-hour uh, bus trip from Chicago to Whitecap Mountain, which is in the northern part of Wisconsin. And my friend and I decided <laughs> that we should try acid on this bus trip. And uh, about an hour into dropping this acid, I realized that I am losing my mind. And uh, I'm 
he and I are sitting next to each other on the bus. We're in about the middle of the bus. And I think that if I just shut my eyes, it'll, I'll be okay. <laughs> and I'm leaning my head against the window and the vibration of the bus. I don't know if you remember that old cartoon where the little turtle go, is spinning down the thing yes. going, oh, no, Mr. Wizard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm seeing that. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm fucked. And then I, I get this sick feeling that I'm going to die, that I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. And I vomit just enough that it fills my mouth. Oh. And my buddy is, I need him to get out of the way so I can go to the bathroom. He doesn't know what, I'm, I'm trying to mime, get the fuck out of the way so I can go. And he's not understanding, so I just crack my mouth a tiny bit and blow the odor at him. And he goes, oh! And he bolts up out of the seat and lets me out. And I go spit this out. I'm sorry for people listening to this. You, some of you have probably tuned off already. But uh, then it was probably the most challenging thing I'd ever had at that point in my life because I'm like... I've got nine more hours on this fucking bus mm. and I'm hearing voices. I'm hearing people calling my name that aren't there's teachers <laughs> 15 yards away, you know, at the front of the bus. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I got this moment of, of clarity that said, you have got to talk to people and stay focused and stay out of your own head yeah. and just connect. And that is, Hopefully that will be enough to keep you alert and keep you. And so I did. I ignored the voices that I that I heard, and and before I knew it, you know, uh, ten hours had passed, and we were up there. And I just remember laying down in the in the bunk bed and breathing a deep sigh of relief and saying, "I will never do that again." And six months yeah. later, I did acid again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my brother when he actually came down from up north, he was. Uh, he was serious about the LSD experience. He had read all the, you know, the, the spiritual experience, the Timothy Leary, the Alex Huxley, the Albert books. He'd read and they, and they all that. And they right? didn't know at that point the damage that LSD does to the brain and how it can really set you up for depression for the rest of your life. Well, yeah, well, what, what happened, what, what I got from that was most of the bad trips were because you got caught between your ego and the drug. Mm -hmm. And it was usually because you didn't take enough LSD is what most bad trips resolve from. Because if you take enough, you don't have a choice. You lose your ego. Really? It, it, it goes. It's gone. You do not have a choice. And that's where the good trips are. But a lot of people are afraid, and they hear there was a lot of bad information. Why do I around. find that so hard to believe? Yes, that, yes. Because there was a kid in our uh, high school who was fucking crazy, and he did six hits of acid and had a terrible trip. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe there's a point at which. Maybe there's you, a point. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was, a, there was a kind of naive period where it was very refreshing, mm -hmm. and uh, there, was, there was a an opening of windows that would eventually shut by the opening of those windows. You know, George Carlin once Absolutely. described drug use as a, a window that opens in your mind, but eventually it will close where the drugs don't work anymore. And you have to recognize when that, when that time yes. comes. And that, and that was, that was my experience. And that's what happened with LSD. We took it as a, uh, as seriously. We took it. The only time we'd really take it would be out in the country. Wouldn't be around crowds, but of course, it, we start to abuse it. We start taking it at concerts. We start taking mm. it everywhere. Oh, you know, once we got 
like we felt like we were pros with it. And what happened, here's a strange thing that happened, is uh, one of the girls I went to high school with was James Colburn's daughter. Mm-hmm. And James Colburn was, uh, had an article in Playboy at the time, was one of the first movie stars that was uh, using LSD. Yeah, was and, it legal at this point, or was it illegal? Yeah, it was still legal. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was LSD-25 made by Sandoz Laboratories. Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked her, I said, hey, you know, your dad, where does he get that from? She said, I don't know. Where he's... So she went and checked in his study, and he had a little thing of, you know, 24 ampules in this little thing from Sandoz or whatever. Who knows here? He got it, whatever. So she brought me a couple of them, and uh, and my friend's wife was a registered nurse, mm-hmm. and uh, so I went out underneath an, uh, a lemon tree, and I said, "I'm just going to lay out there for a while." And she had the sterilized water and the everything. It was the first thing I ever shot, and uh, she came out, wiped my arm, and put both doses, two vials of LSD twenty five, straight into my bloodstream. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> and uh, it was unbelievably magical. It was so magical. Um, but time, by the time the needle came out, that the tree was, you know, doing its doing its deal, and it was just, it was the most smoothest, beautiful trip. It was complete ego loss, complete peace, complete oneness, like with a god. Complete. Um, it's so it, it touched me so much, Paul. I can actually feel the back of my jaws watering now. That with that almost metallic taste that you get when you're starting to come on. Yeah, the, the, and it's so shocking to hear you describe this as a recovering drug addict. Yeah, that that I, is. I have tremendous respect for LSD, and that's why I understand. But you're not recommending anybody go do it. Absolutely not. No, because it's a false high. It's a false god. It, it's it's a chemically induced god. It's and anything that is achieved that way, I know I'll use it until I do, until it turns against me. Right. You know, like I did everything that that I loved so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, from back you know, on the Kovac house, that that was just a great experience. That was when everything was working in my drug life. Um, by the time we left there, we were all sniffing a lot of Coke and, um, and smoking really heavy duty THC stuff. A lot of angel dust, smoking Mm. a lot of angel dust. Um, and we kind of disbanded from there and I kind of went out on my own. And when I went out on my own, I, I, we all had girlfriends or whatever. I took this girl with me. And I start dealing larger amounts then. And when I start dealing larger amounts, uh, I start hooking up with other people in the valley that were doing fairly big amounts. And like four of us banded together and so we could buy one big load. And we would all, like once a week, put all our money together and buy a major load. And of they which, had their, which they, one guy was a North Hollywood guy, one guy was a West Valley guy. I, I was right here in this area, and, uh, and, and then another guy was like Sun Valley or something. And um, we all had our own clients, you know. What, what drugs? Uh, it started with large, large uh, like kilos of cocaine, 
Um, very high quality, uh, you know, Peruvian flake, ether wash stuff. We were all about quality. Uh, so, because we all had habits, so we could step on it mm-hmm. and get our stuff free. Mm-hmm. We weren't looking to do a killing in the money or whatever, although... You just wanted enough to survive. Yeah, I had a job. I was still working in the studios this whole time. Yeah. You know, I was I was still doing great. And um, But what happened is, is from there, um, I moved a couple more times. I'd move like every six months or whatever like that. And then I had uh, I had a guy that was buying a half pound every three every three to four days of half, coke, which was big back then. That was the early seventies. Huge amount of coke. And the DEA was just he was buying it from you. Well, he was buying it from me until I got kind of smart and put a middleman in between. So right. I paid this guy five hundred dollars just to come get the stuff from me, and then he would go do the delivery. And it was so down with these people; they never even tested it, checked it. They knew it was good. Mm-hmm. It was an exchange of packages. Mm-hmm. But I didn't want to be there for that exchange, yeah. right? So this guy got $500 to do that, and he calls me up one day and says, my mom just died up in Oregon. i got to go right now. You know, uh, She's in the hospital. They don't expect her to be alive till I get up there. I said, okay, go. And uh, But I knew later that afternoon that there was it come down to where it was hardly phone calls, hardly anything. This guy would pull up in a market on the Sherman Way and... Uh, Sepulveda, he'd park on the side of the market. My guy would go in the market, he'd buy a bunch of bananas, put them in a bag, he'd come out, take the half pound out of his jacket time, put it in the bag of bananas, walk along the side of the market, they'd exchange two packages, and that'd be it. And uh, so I had to do that, right? And so when I went to do that, um, the the DEA was there waiting for me. And it was so really, your middleman had set you up. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I still don't know that to this day. That's too too coincidental. It's very yeah, it's too yeah. coincidental. But so I had this bag in my hand. Um, a car started pulling out from around the market. I hear a helicopter comes up from over above, and I realize that I've got this. Back then, that was a huge chart. It was a ten to life. That's what that was. And, and, it was a half pound of coke. Yeah. And anything for uh, profiteering, yeah. moving any hard narcotic profiteering was a 10 to life back then. And uh, and so I knew I had this, and if I thought, I'm going to reach in that bag and I'm going to just take that baggie and just dust it in the air, right? And I get down, my hand down that bag, and all I hear is hammers clicking, right? <laughs> and they're up on me, and the guy gets me on the ground, and he's got this 45 in my temple going, please, please just move. I'd love to blow your brain across this parking lot. Please, and um, and that's when they they took me in. I got bailed out. Um, you know, they wanted all the stuff. Uh, and as far as who's my connections, who's whatever, I wouldn't say a word. I got bailed out on fifty thousand dollar bail, and um, posted by your parents. Posted by my parents, um, which I eventually paid my lawyer off for and the bail bondsman because when that finally went to court uh they had me dead to rights and i had good attorney i had attorneys that were in the pockets of van nice judges but they said we can't do anything about this mm-hmm. you know uh, there were actually attorneys around the valley at the time because there were so many narcotics arrests that uh there were judges that were being paid off i'm working at the studios right still through mm-hmm. all this stuff right and i go for sentencing in Superior Court, uh, 
And, <laughs> and so I'd already gotten sentenced to the 10 to life. Uh, they wanted that my attorney had set it up so I'd come back for sentencing because I was still working so mm-hmm. I could give my boss a time. But the judge kind of flipped on us uh, in court. He said, I see no reason why we can't take this man now. My j- attorney stood up and said, Your Honor, he's he's on lunch from his studio job. He will destroy his career. He goes, what career? <laughs> so he goes, well, my attorney says, can we, can we please have a, a lunch break so he can at least make a call? And then my he'll my client will be released to you. You know, mm. uh, and I never came back. Really? Well, I never. I, <laughs> it was so funny because I was like. Oh my! Thought I was such like a big criminal or something, right? I went, I went home. I was so nervous getting out of there. I, I, I remember driving off the curb of the courtroom. Yeah, I did not even didn't even look for a driveway. I just got to get out of here. They're looking for me. I'm a fugitive now. Right. right? And uh, so obviously your job at the studio is gone at this point because it'd be too easy for them to find you there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, changed my name. Uh, withdrew my pension. Um, this was in 1973. Um, ran uh, as a fugitive, moving large um, portions of cocaine and heroin up and down the coast to uh, a little town called Zigzag, Oregon. It's kind of like the Topanga Canyon of Portland. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> Is and, that where Zigzag papers get their name? I have no idea, but it's... <laughs> a, it's, it's it's a creepy little town. By this time, I'm deep. I'm deep into the spoon. Uh, I'm doing major amounts of uh, China White Matchhead stuff. That was what's so, that mean? What's what Matchhead stuff mean? Uh, pure China White. You can literally sniff a Matchhead. It was so strong, and the, and these are guys with healthy heroin habits. Maybe two Matchheads would be close to overdose. It was way too... The amount that you could put on a match head would be yeah, enough. the size of a match head on a... On a, on a, on a, on a, on a that's not even shooting it. Wow. That's how strong it was. And a lot of people were overdosing over it and stuff, so... And where were you getting it from? Uh, I had this connection that was coming in from the airport with it, and uh, I've never, ever had a connection like that. He was, where was he, he getting he was it from directly? straight in from the Golden Triangle, yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's one of the benefits of... Uh, importing on the west coast is you get it straight from the, it uh, was uh but it was and there's a there's a pretty horrible story behind that in fact um all my friends were all connoisseurs and all wanted the best and everybody wanted to have good enough product so they could cut a little and whatever so i would give them the option you know my guys were really close do you do you want me to cut it and you're going to pay this price or do you, you want it pure and you're going to pay a lot more Whatever you cut it yourself, so no, no, give it to us pure. Whatever I said, okay, and stuff is you got to be really careful. Right? So some of that ended up going to this guy that I knew, his family, and uh, and shot a lot of heroin with them. They were they were part of the they were part of the clique uh, right here in the valley, um, and it was around it was around the Jewish holidays. And you were living in Oregon at this time, or you were living here? This no, is this be- is when I was living here. This, this is before you got busted. Thing. This is before I got busted, yeah. And um, and 
I found out that this particular guy uh, had gone to this Jewish dinner where the whole family was there, his brothers, his mom and dad. And um, he'd gone in the bathroom during, he got up in the bathroom at dinner, went in the, in the head, mm-hmm. did some of this china, and overdosed. He didn't come out, right? He had f- fallen against the door. So when I mean, he didn't come back to the dinner table, his father went to go check on him. His father pushes the door open, sees him with a needle in the arm, blue, and has a heart attack and dies on top of him. Oh, my God. The mother... And goes, you sold this guy the, that heroin? It, it came from me indirectly, yeah. And uh, the mother goes down the hallway right, and sees what's happened. It's never been the same. And this was what year that this happened? It was in 73. Wow. Yeah. One one fix. One fix took out a whole family. You know. And what do you remember feeling when you heard about that? At the time? Yeah. Um, I simply rolled it off to whoever I sold it to. You know. Uh, I, you I warned them. I told them, what are you doing? You can't, you know. You... Now, and, and I don't know. I didn't know the facts. So the person but... that you sold it to sold it to that guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it made me double think the whole thing of giving people the option to take it pure or cut, you know, um, because it was just it was just so it was so powerful. I had I had a four hundred dollar day habit going on this stuff in nineteen seventy three. In seventy three, yeah, <laughs> and when I was running as a fugitive, right, and and so to bring that habit back down, I and I had this fake ID. My name was Harry Harry Bring, right? Harry what? Harry Bring. B-R-I-N-G. Yep. Yep. And uh, I had this wig I was wearing, and, you know, I would, I'd only come back into California a little bit. I'm married to wife number two now, who was the Big Connections girlfriend who, the first time we ever did anything together, we kind of, the thing, it was on. Uh-huh. You know, and she ended up, one night, just showed up my door saying, that's it, I'm done with him. And it was on with us. Second and he wife would still, num- and he would still deal to you even though you had his girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, wife yeah. number two. Uh, never knew her one day sober. A very gorgeous Norwegian model, beautiful, beautiful girl. The best by far drug connoisseur, packager, wearer. Um, she was just. Unbelievable. Like, like what? Describe what specifically she made her. She knew a good... every kind of cut there was on every kind of narcotic. She knew everything about where it came from. She knew how exactly how to package, weigh precisely, her measurements. Everything was. Art- she was like a chemist, you know. Yeah. She was, uh, and and she was beautiful, just unbelievably gorgeous, right? Um, but died in the streets. Died right. in the streets as a as a wino downtown. Really? About fifty pounds overweight, all scarred up from beer bottles. Being, uh, yep. How long ago did she die? She died about, um, you know, fourteen years ago. She disappeared for, and you know what? These four wives. This just came up the other day on one of my match dates. Yeah. One of the girls asked me, "Did you propose to any of these girls?" <laughs> and I went, "Holy shit! No." <laughs> You know, I did. 
I didn't propose any, any of them. I was one of those guys like, yeah, okay, that sounds all right. Well, yeah, we can do that. And uh, it was just kind of a, wow. it was a rude awakening the other yeah. day. Yeah, like, wow. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times book review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So anyways, see, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm with her and, and I start running as a fugitive. So I get out of California and I'm basically up there and she's down here and she's handling the business down here, getting me the supplies and it's going up there. She gets in a car wreck, um, and goes to the front window. It's a scar, big scar on her face. Right? It wasn't her fault. Lawsuits involved. Uh, that settles out after about four or five months because uh, I was I was run as a fugitive for about a year and a half. By the time I got caught in jail, and everything it was almost two years. So um, I had to come down to sign the papers. It was my car. It was my policies. Uh, on the uh, on the thing, so I, I wanted to come down. Anyways, I'd been up there. I was ew. to be hooked up there and not have your regular source to get it all. Yeah, and be sick sometimes in that wet, damp, dark hotels up, up there in Portland. That was some really dark times for me. Really, really dark times with that impending doom. That, yeah, you're about to get caught. Yeah, I mean, I had a grand plan that I was going to move to Hawaii. I was trying to make a big lump sum. And then uh, and then the whole big lump sum, I, I took a major load to make one last killing, and I got ripped off <laughs> in Portland, right? And so um, everything, was, everything was gone. So uh, I, I'm a clever guy. I'm smart. Um, I set up. The guy comes back to me, and I said, well, you, you know, what happened? He goes, I, I got... I got ripped off. I said, well, you got to get that back. You got to get all that money back for me. He goes, well, I'm going to need another load to do that. I said, okay, I'll get the load. If you can get me the, your, your profits back from it, I'll get you two more loads. 
And then maybe you could start getting more. He goes, I can get all your money back, three loads. Okay, I said, the first one's coming. I go, and we were moving, uh, at the time, uh, tar heroin. Mm-hmm. Looks basically like mud. Yeah. Right? So that's what I get. I go get as best as I can to simulate the same exact weight. I bring it the same way I am. We would do this whole thing in the basement of an old house in Portland, out in the outskirts of Portland, with you know, the cement foundation with the dirt floor Mm -hmm. with the cord coming down with the one bulb in the center. I mean, this is a movie set, right? you know? And, um, I'd never, uh, my passiveness from my father's passed on to me. I never with all my craziness ever touched guns. Right. But there was a guy in our crew that was called the duct taper. Mm -hmm. Right. And this guy could get you wrapped up in duct tape faster than anything. Right. Mm -hmm. So I take him up there with me. And I take a twenty-two with me that this guy had with no bullets in it, right? And I set up the whole buy. I get the tri-beam out. Um, I get the, the the tar out, which is, you know, half pound. And and I put it up on the scale. And, and it's mud. It's it's mud. I said, but before, but before I even walk in this time, I walk in, uh, I send the duct taper in and tell him, you want to see the money? And tell him I'm out, I'm out of the curb, but, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so they, he he singles me in. Okay, they got the money. They come in. I show him the dope, and uh, put it on the scale, and everything's going on. And uh, I pull out the gun, right? Mm-hmm. And it's him and his girlfriend, this guy down there, and he looks just like Charlie Manson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I say, all right, give me all the money. Whatever, everything happens real fast. I say, yeah, up against that. Pull, there's this big girder coming down and held like the main part of the house up. She's on one side, he's on the other, and the duct taper goes to it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he just starts going around that thing, and the <laughs> he's got them in there, just their heads are sticking out, right? And so I go, oh, we go get ready to leave. We got all the money, we got all the dope that we had. It wasn't dope, it was it was mud. We left mm-hmm. it there, right? Left the tri-beam there, a whole thing. And I go, oh, shit. We, we got to, we we're going to take, the plan was to take their car, mm-hmm. right? Their keys are wrapped up in the duct tape. Their keys tape. are wrapped up. So, <laughs> so the duct tape gets the knife out and they're like, ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Cuts a little thing by their pocket. Which yeah. one is it? And they're like, and uh, yeah, that, that, and we got away with that. So, but anyways, I eventually came back to sign those papers for that, that insurance claim and uh, got pulled over at two in the morning just completely swacked. Um, oh, so you didn't intend to turn yourself in? You got busted. Oh no, yeah, I, I was, I was on course to, you know, do my whole new life in Hawaii, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> so I get pulled over at uh, Coatter Canyon in Ventura, by, right in front of the hot dog show, and it's like three in the morning. And I'm in this, this friend of mine, 65 Chevy Impala. I'll never forget this. And I had dope all over the thing. And I had marks all over my arms. And it was, it was in the winter, and, it, and I had a jacket on, whatever. They, now, they knew something was wrong, but they, but they didn't know what. These regular black and white. So they take me down to Van Nuys to blow to see if I'm drunk. Mm-hmm. Right? That's back then. They had no way of really doing it. They take you to the station. So uh, I blow, nothing. I'm like, okay, okay, all right, good. They, I had this 
meticulous ID. They were uh, complete make. I had country club cards. It had social security. All as Harry Bring. As all as Harry Bring, right? And uh, and so, anyways, I I get ready to blow, and I, everything comes up, whatever. And I'm kind of congenial with them because I'm loaded, and I'm trying to stay on top of it. You can be that way on heroin, and uh, if you're especially if you got some, you know, some nervous energy going, and the guy goes, "Okay, you're." You can go, man, you know. And he goes over to the door, puts his hand on the handle to push the door down to say, you're free to go, right? Mm -hmm. And as he puts that hand down there, cracks it, he goes, you know what? Can I see your arms? And I knew, I knew, man. So I showed him my arms. They took me up narcotics. They printed me. They started to run a make on my prints. Now, this is is early 70s, so there's no computers really to... Mm -hmm. Right. So anyways, they put me in a holding tank and I get on the phone. My phone calls to my bail bondsman. If you, uh, uh, there's, there's an extra $3,000 in this. By the way, you know that you're a fuck up when you refer to it as my bail bondsman. Yes. <laughs> Not a bail bondsman. That's right. My bail bondsman. <laughs> Art Aragon. Been around forever. Uh, it was a race. Either the bondsman got there first. Or they made my prints first. Wow. And uh, I'll never forget that feeling that washed over me, that that incredible dark chill of that sheriff walking down the little freeway there in front of the holding tank going, Cheever? Oh. Cheever, right? And it was. I knew it was over. You know, I had that tender life facing me. I had that uh, jumpy bail. I had the... The pending charge, uh, probably going to search a car for another holding, and uh, uh, and I had a you know four hundred dollar day habit. Oh, uh, on and like to take that habit down, I'd gotten on one hundred eighty milligrams of methadone that I'd been on for like four months. Yeah, I almost died from that kick. I, I literally almost died. Yeah. What describe kicking heroin? Well, for me, because it was methadone, methadone, heroin, completely different. Kicking heroin uh, is not that bad, really. I mean, it's bad. It's horrible. But it's nothing like uh, some other other drugs. Now, methadone, that's another completely different animal. It's worse kicking methadone than heroin? Methadone soaks all the way into your bone marrow. And it's a, it can be anywhere from a, from a, Depending on how healthy you are and how young you are and what you are and how many how much how many milligrams you've been on, it can be anywhere from two months to four months, and you will not sleep. Oh my god! I didn't sleep for thirty one days after they caught me. Not a, not a wing. I didn't sleep for thirty one days, and then I had on the other side. I came out. I had hepatitis, uh, and I was in. They took me and put me in Wayside Max when they were trying to find out who I was. <laughs> uh, and I was in the bakery at Wayside Max pounding dough. Uh-huh. And I'm, everybody's calling me Mellow Yellow. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm weak as can be. I'm jaundiced back. I got, you know, my, my poop is white. My, yellow, uh, my, my pee looks like motor oil. Um, oh, my God. And I'm trying to tell the CEOs in the bakery, but everybody's trying for a play to get a med bed uh, so they don't listen to you. So finally I, I went over to this guy and said, man, you need to come watch me. I, I got to pee. You need to come watch this. Yeah. 
And I finally got him to do that, and they rolled me up and took me down to, uh, and I was like, oh, my God, please. Oh, this was, I was so, I was so happy. You know, and they put me in this van, and they took me down to uh, the Twin Towers, and on the seventh floor there's an infectious disease floor. Uh, it's for, like, everything from poison ivy to TB. AIDS hadn't been identified yet. Uh, so syphilis, um, gonorrhea, mm. hepatitis. Anybody that's incarcerated in the system that has an infectious disease goes to that floor. Right. And there's no bars or anything. It's like, it's like death row, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, and you think, it's a hospital bed in a very small room with an iron door with a little square window, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be so great, right? And, uh, but it was hell. It was hell because you only came out um, twice a week, and that was only to shower, and you ate your meals inside. Uh, the lights never went out, uh, and I was in there for 110 days, and it was bad. It was bad. But I managed to get some heroin into myself. <laughs> did you really? How the fuck did you get heroin in? I suppose you can get it anywhere, but how do you, who do you ask? Just well, there to... were some guys that were uh, trustees that had been in there, were, were going to be in there for like six months to a year, would mm-hmm. sweep the floors. Yeah. And I, w- I would get, once a month up there, you'd get a, be able to get a visitor, right? Mm-hmm. And they would sweep the visitor's room too. So I had, had my second wife at the time, Drop some China White in a cigarette cellophane out there, and uh, told the guy I'll split it with you if you bring it to me. You know, so there from there I went to uh, I went to state prison, and uh, where'd you where'd you go? I went to a CRC, which is a see. Here's the neat thing about this is I should be dead so many times over, Paul. Uh, like if I hadn't ran as a fugitive, I would have got that ten to life. Because in those two years that I ran, there were so many people getting arrested for just narcotics with no violence, um, and me being one of them. They had to th- reduce the sentences. They were like, "This is we can't we can't keep it up. We're putting these people that are just have narcotics arrests. Mm-hmm. They've never done, never robbed, stole nothing, and we're putting them with killers and um, right. armed robbers and rapists and whatever. So they created what's called an N number, and it was for narcotics." If you had narcotics on your jacket only, you'd get this end number. The deal with it was is it was a it was a much reduced sentence, but it had a nasty testing parole on it. Seven years blind testing. They could come get a piss test anytime they wanted. Anytime they wanted, yeah. And <clears throat> the real dope fiends back then, because recovery wasn't a big deal or very prevalent, and there's not a lot of people that knew about it, and there certainly wasn't all the institutions around now that uh, that help us with those problems, but uh, a lot of them didn't said, I, "Forget it. I'll take the time because mm-hmm. I'll never, I'll never, I'll just go. I'll never make it." Yeah. So, uh, so I got the, I got the two two years because of that, um, and I got, I got out. Um, but when I got to state prison, you know, you got to remember, I'm coming out of isolation now, where I'd been down for almost four months and um, I'm white as an egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a middle-class white boy with no, no muscle, nothing. 
right in me. And I'm getting off the bus to walk into state prison, and they're at the fence looking at me, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're done. You're done, right? Because on the way up to that, um, on the way up to this insanity of trying to go through all the courts, because you don't get your real name back until you hit the state. If you're arrested underneath an alias, mm-hmm. I was Harry all the way through county jail, all the way through Wayside. Mm-hmm. I was still Harry, right? Right. <laughs> and so you get your original name back when you finally hit the state and you're sentenced to, uh, you know, your final sentencing. Because it just gets too confusing. Right. So <clears throat> I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in county jail, and I'm sleeping on the floor next to the toilet. So sick, so sick. For, this is about day. I don't know, maybe 15 or 16, uh, and I can't sleep. There's two guys down from San Quentin that are going back to court for uh, killing two people in a motor vehicle uh, registration. They waited till motor vehicles had registration, and they knew they'd have a ton of cash, mm-hmm. and they, they went in with uh, you know weapons and sprayed the roof, and people ran in all directions and ripped off the DMV, and one of them went out and got underneath the getaway car. And when they took off, he, they drug him to death. Ugh. And when somebody got killed inside, and they never found the money. And um, so they were being brought back to court. But the one guy, these guys were hardcore uh, Mexican mafia. Mm-hmm. Hardcore, right? I mean, this guy had shank marks all over him from, from the joint. You yeah. know? And his name was Loco. And he had this little little other guy there with him, and they're bannering back and forth while I'm on, on the floor, and, and they see that sick. And I I know they're talking about taking me off. I know they're talking about raping me, right? Really? Oh, I knew right off the top, I know, right? And they're laughing, looking at me, and stuff like that, right? And uh, <clears throat> so I get. Um, he falls asleep. I get his booking number off his band, his wristband. Right? I call up my wife, and I call up uh, my wife, and I say, you, you bring Susie down here and tell her to wear the lowest cut dress she can and call out this booking number. Right? And so they both come down. Let's get a visit. He gets, you know, this, this guy Loco, he gets called out. He's like, oh, yeah. And, uh, he comes back and I give him a look and he's like, "It's okay, but that still ain't gonna save you." Right? And he said something like, "And uh, what? What did she do?" She she just called him out for a visit. I mean, this guy had been down in San Quentin. He had seen or talked to a chick and who knows how long, right? So she just talked to him. She didn't. She just talked to him. Had a really low cut on. She's I gotcha. Real, she was a real babe, right? Yeah. Um, he probably talked dirty to her or whatever, yeah. right? But I made sure she did it again or whatever. So a couple night, night, other nights go by, and they come up to me uh, about 11 o'clock one night. And they say, you can make this real hard on yourself, or you can make it real easy. You know, But we're going to get it anyway. Either way, we're going to get it. You know? And I'm, I could barely stand up, right? Yeah. So, and this guy's like 220, maybe 6 feet, right? And uh, so... 
I stand up. I'm against the bars, standing against the bars. I said, "You're gonna have to. You're gonna have to either kill me or knock me out to take it from me, right?" And they start laughing. And I said, "Why are you making it so hard, man? Come on, just lay down here on the bed, right?" And uh, I'm like, "No fucking way, right?" So he starts coming towards me. He starts taking his belt off and coming towards me, right? Uh, and I lay a haymaker as hard as I could, right, right. Like, I don't know where he even landed. Somewhere yeah. on his face. Yeah. But it was like you see in the movies, like hitting... Well, like when Don Knotts hit, you know, hit somebody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like... The guy doesn't even like, blink. Was he, yeah. Just like Clang. It, it was like nothing that happened right at all. Mm. Whatever. And he puts his... I'll never forget. He puts his hands up under my neck and pushes my head back against the bar and puts his, his grip of his hand right in my Adam's apple area and pushes me in. And he says, I just wanted to see how much heart you had. That's what I want to see. He says, I'll, I'll get it from somewhere else, but, you know, I don't forget when people do something for me. And he said, tomorrow morning, you walk behind me and chow. Wow. And Wow. Yeah. And he was just saying, because he says, you're going to go run against this when you leave here. When you go up, up to state, they're going to be after you. And so I get to state prison, and... um Going through, um, they're, they're checking me in. They do the whole thing with the indoctrination and, and all that. And you go through all this, you know. And I get called to the, they get called out. I get called to the captain's office. All right. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, and uh, so the CO walks me up to the captain's office. And I walk in. And I, and I walk in. And, and it says assignment office on the door. Captain, duh, duh, right? I walk in, there's this little office there, and there's this guy there. And he looks at me, and he goes, Cheever? And I was like, yeah. Yeah? Uh, yeah. He goes, Randy Phillips. And uh, I said, oh, my God. He was a guy that we used to have rock wars. It would be Sherman Oaks against Studio City Park. And we'd have these rock wars when we were like eight, nine years old. You'd throw rocks at each other. Yeah, we'd all have, we'd find our little forts in the park, and we'd you know we'd go Sherman Oaks against Studio City. Right. And he had the most prestigious or most important job an inmate can have in the institution, and he was getting paroled out um, in about a month. And it was his job to leave that to a white boy, you know, uh-huh. somebody that could type, somebody that could spell, somebody that could do some office work. Right. And he says, "Hey, I'm getting paroled out, man. You want this job?" You know, and another god shot. Yeah. You know, I was the only guy that didn't have to be down for count. Uh, I had my own office. Uh, I was, nobody's going to fuck with the, the captain's kid. Right. You know, the, the head CEO's kid. Right. right. And, uh, and I used it. I was the one that kept ethnic balance in the whole institution. Right? What? Yeah. You have to keep an ethnic balance to the whole institution and and there's a giant board on the wall with everybody's name and booking number on it mm-hmm. and they're uh, and it's vanilla for caucasians mm-hmm. and then it was orange for chicanos mm-hmm. and then it was like yellow for asians there weren't very many of those mm-hmm. right and then they had uh what was it for black red for black mm-hmm. and um and you had to keep and then they were all so many in, a, in in this cell block, and so many in this one, and 
And, and then there were all the jobs through the whole institution. Because, see, what you don't realize is that a lot of people... And, and, and this was which institution? Uh, it's called California Rehabilitation Center. It's in right next to Chino. Oh, okay. And, and this was state, not federal? State. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have what, they, what are called pay numbers. And a lot of these guys that are in there, uh, they have nobody from the outside to even bring them a buck, mm-hmm. you know. And... You can only leech for so long in there. You can only borrow smokes or coffee or, you know, if you've got, if you've got cream and sugar and coffee, or taster's choice, mm-hmm. uh, and cream and sugar, that's called a Cadillac inside, right? And if you're sticking with a Cadillac and desert crawlers, which are, you know, unfiltered camels, uh-huh. uh, you, you're, you're rolling big, right? If somebody from the outside gives you that. Well, yeah. You've got or, to, you, or they give you the, the money, money to buy it. Or you've got to work for it. So the pay numbers are Or are like, fuck for it, right? Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Or, or trade dope for it or whatever, right? right? And um, so I had all these jobs to bargain with. You know, I'll give you a job in the CO's caf- cafe, cafeteria, but I want a hamburger every day, right? Mm-hmm. I'll give you a job in the dry cleaning, but I want all my clothes done yeah. all the time. You know, so, so it's like you got a seat on Wall Street, yes. basically yeah. in the in the joint. Absolutely. So then you were in there for uh, how long? How'd two, you get out? Uh, two years. And when I got out, by that means my my strung out wife was left out here, who went through everything I owned, mm-hmm. <laughs> including everything that was in every storage bin and whatever. This is the Norwegian. Yeah. And um, fucking. And never, and uh, and never kind of was disappeared. Last communication I had, I had about nine months ago, and I was in heavy communication with. Uh, nine months ago, I thought she died fourteen years ago. Well, no, nine months in, before I finished my uh, my two years. Oh, okay. I had no communication. Nine about, months previous to that, you mean? Pre- I thought you meant yeah, nine, nine months, months before, before I today. got out of my two years. I got gotcha. you. Uh, she just dropped off the map. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and none of the gang had seen her or anything like that. And ever since then, she, she kind of disappeared. And when I, uh, I had been in heavy communications with my, uh, with the girl who ran my lawyer's law office. It was a paralegal, wife number three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, she picked me up from the gate and, uh, it was on. And still at this time, Paul, no even idea about recovery. Yeah. Not, not even an idea that I was in, I was in the grips of a killer disease. Mm-hmm. Not, it wasn't even there. In fact, when I got out, my old crew had a huge party for me at the Mikado, joining rooms. And they're all like, be careful. Be <laughs> careful. We know, how, we know how clean you are. I said, no, I'm not clean. I was using it inside. Yeah. Right and and uh, it was this huge party and a bunch of other people overdosed and I was out there rescuing you and all right so it was just so crazy when I think about that and and here's here's where the parole was to give you an idea where even the state was at at the time my testing parole was it's okay to drink but you can't use any drugs so uh, I didn't start drinking until you know to a person who's not an addict or an alcoholic that probably makes per- perfect sense but an addict or an alcoholic would understand how crazy that is yeah 
And that's the, that is one of the things that is why so many people have trouble getting help is the, the misperceptions, you know, and the doctors that prescribe Vicodin at the drop of a hat yeah. that, you know, for, for something where ibuprofen would certainly do, you know, and the, because they don't want you calling them again for another refill. So a lot of them will just give you a bottle of yep. 100 Vicodin. And they don't want you to call them in the middle of the night or something like that. Or, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very misunderstood disease, of course. But um, anyways, uh, from there, Paul, I, I, uh, I get another God shot. I go down to Burbank to meet my parole officer. Right, and I pulled the only lady parole officer in out of twenty agents, right? And so I'm thinking, okay, that's good, but she's still going to watch me pee and whatever like that, right? So I meet her, and everything's good. And I tell her I'm going back to work in the studios. You know, I'm going to put my name on the board. And back then, I, I, <laughs> back then you still could. Uh, my parents had paid my union dues. Uh, I was still in high grouping, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I go back to work right away. As a projectionist at? at as a projectionist at Warner Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? And this is where the, the some of this is where things started really. I mean, <laughs> things that happened before. I had a couple things at MGM happen, but this is where some things really start happening because. I'm in full fledge of my disease. I love I'm, the fact I'm, that I'm, I'm, I'm you, on, ju- you just got out of almost getting butt fucked <laughs> in prison, kickering heroin, but now this is where things go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know what? Maybe we should pause here. I think this is going to be a two parter. Um, what are what are they going to hear in part two? They're going to hear the the, the two, stories behind the uh, why you were two, banned gonna, from four studios. A, you're going to hear a lot of funny stuff from yeah. uh, what happened on Major Lots. Yeah. You're going to hear about the the, the fall of of my addiction into the darkest. Uh, you're going to hear about my third wife abandoning me with my child. You're going to hear about me hitting bottom, and then you're going to hear about me uh, coming out of you know that to uh, glorious success and pinnacles of inside achievements and outside achievements and great stuff to only fall to the disease again and come back up out of it again two and a half years ago. Which is where you are now. <laughs> uh and two of those stories that I'm going to have you tell, um, <laughs> which in and of itself were enough to make me want to have you on the podcast, was the uh, story of the screening of Ordinary People, where you threaten Robert Redford's life. Yes. And uh, I'm not going to give the other one away, but it is where you are in a, uh, a blackout at a screening for a movie. You're running the projector for it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yes, and, and you don't have any clothes on, and right? Yeah, well, we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. So that yes. that's all to come in, the, in the part de- two. The details are the the yeah, <laughs> the details are the makers of that one. And I oh, I have I have a couple. Of I ones. want you to find out what movie that was because you couldn't remember what the movie was I that will. you were in a yeah. blackout for. Uh, I but will. I could do that real easy too. 
But, uh, um, buddy, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, you, coming and, and sharing your time with me and being my, being my friend and helping lift me. I know I called you a couple of weeks ago when I was having just a shit day and I was sideways and I just needed... I just needed uh, some loving from you, man. And no. you're always there with with uh, with love and support. And uh, you've helped me through some some dark days, and I appreciate that. Well, if you've been just the highlight of my day, thank you, Paul. I love you, bro. You you, you give so much to so many people you don't know. Oh, you, thanks. You really don't know from so many different directions that a lot of us can't give. Yeah. Well, thanks, I buddy. love that about you. Yeah, that was Greg Cheever, and you didn't see, but right after he told me that, he rolled his eyes, which I found very hurtful. Um, part two of Greg will be will be coming up next week, and uh, I don't think it's going to disappoint you. Maybe it will. Maybe you're hard to impress, but uh, I find I find his stories to be uh, very very interesting, and uh, and the fact that he has uh, managed to find a way out of that that darkness is uh, is a fucking miracle to me. Uh, I want to read a letter I got from a, a, a kid named Matt. Um, it says, Dear Paul, I'm sorry if I start to ramble, but bear with me. My name is Matt. I'm 17 years old, a senior in high school. I get good grades, am moderately athletic, and I'm a finalist to become a National Merit Scholar. I've also been severely depressed for my entire time as a high school student. And a few months ago, I was about as close to ending my life as any human being mentally could be. I say was because that breaking point is now behind me. Much of this is due to finally getting up the nerve to tell someone how wrong I felt. Since then, I've been diagnosed with ADD and am prescribed medication for that as well as depression, and I'm seeing a therapist weekly. I've also recently discovered your Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast, and I truly believe that was the most helpful development of all. Well, I think he's actually being a little, uh, maybe a little uh, overflattering there, but uh, thank you. Uh, he says, the prospect of being medicated scares me, and I'm not crazy about my current therapist, but being able to hear certain specific worries and experiences I've been afraid to talk about come from you and your guest mouths has not just let me know that I'm not some quiet antisocial freak who will always be alone, which was just the least of my worries. And he put in parentheses, hope that didn't make you sad. Doesn't make me sad, man. Uh, actually makes me realize that you probably feel a lot like I felt when I was your age. Uh, just way more articulate. Uh, Matt then went on to say, I also wanted to put out a few of my own personal fears as it's the fear off on your podcast that most resonates with me. You can skip this if you like, as it is a bit long and isn't the most important thing I wanted to say, but I figured maybe something on here would be something that would resonate with you. So, uh, so here goes. Fear that you read that I was 17 and will either think he's a kid, what's he got to worry about, or ah, he's just another apathetic teen, he'll grow out of it. Uh, wrong. Uh, fear that all things considered, I have a negative uh, impact on the lives of those close to me, but they love me too much to see it. Fear that all my worries are in some way a sign of narcissism or self-absorption. Fear that I won't that I don't worry about the mistakes I've made in the past. I won't learn from them and I'll always be the same asshole. Fear that if I don't worry about mistakes I may make in the future, I'll be unprepared and crumble once something does blindside. Fear that if I had kids, I'd be the reason they'd end up as screwed up as me, either because of genetics or because I'll make the same mistake my parents made and not be able to hide my sadness from my children, spreading it to them. 
Fear that when people say your life hasn't even begun yet or something to that effect, it somehow means that the friendships that I actually do value now are merely transient and in the long run, each of us are superfluous to each other's lives. Similarly, a fear that I'm superfluous to everyone outside my family's lives. Fear that subconscious feelings they have towards me, that I'm fragile and weak, and that they'll be artificially cheery around me or hesitate to be honest about their problems so as to not push me over the edge. Fear that I just wrote an awkward run-on sentence and seem stupid now. I fear this message was too long and you'll never read most of it. Sorry if I rambled, but just know that this message isn't intended as only a method of therapy for myself, though by now it partially is. I felt compelled to come here and let you know that for years I've felt too disillusioned and in many ways apathetic to have any real heroes, but you are my hero. I felt cheesy just writing that, but I'm extremely grateful for you sending out these long, these hour-long conversations that really, for me at least, do a world of good. I'm sure some part of you wants to say, I'm just doing this for myself. I'm glad this helped, but I'm no hero, because that's what I would tell myself. Well, Matt, I'll just end this with this one fear back at you. My fear is that there aren't enough 17-year-olds like you out there. And yeah, maybe that's a fucking cheesy way to end this show, but you're a special person. You really are. And your life probably won't be simple, and your life probably won't be painless. But if you continue getting the help that you need and you deserve... I have the feeling you're gonna uh, you're gonna do some pretty amazing stuff in this world, and uh, I love the idea of a world where a 17 year old that I've never even met can make me feel less alone, and make me feel better about myself and better about the world. So if you're out there and you're stuck, I just remember we're not alone. There's help, and just gotta ask for it. <laughs> 